Well, good morning. Glad you're all here this morning. Happy Independence Day weekend. Bear with me this morning as we deal with the, the stage speakers here. I'll do my best to communicate with you. Um, it being Independence Day weekend, I thought we might take a little walk down memory lane here first thing this morning and go through a little bit of history. We're celebrating the freedoms of this country here this weekend, and we're celebrating that flag that stands for those freedoms that we all know so well. I thought it might be interesting to take a look at kind of the history of that. So on a rainy September 13, 1814, British warships sent a downpour of shells and rockets onto Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor, relentlessly pounding the American fort for 25 hours. The bombardment known as the Battle of Baltimore came only weeks after the British had attacked Washington, D.C., burning the Capitol, the Treasury, and the President's house. It was another chapter in the ongoing War of 1812. A week earlier, Francis Scott Key, a 35-year-old American lawyer, had boarded the flagship of the British fleet on the Chesapeake Bay in hopes of persuading the British to release a friend who had recently been arrested. Key's tactics were successful, but because he and his companions had gained knowledge of the impending attack on Baltimore, the British did not let them go. They allowed the Americans to return to their own vessel, but continued guarding them. Under their scrutiny, Key watched on September 13th as the barrage of Fort McHenry began eight miles away. It seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting out shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone, Key wrote later. But when darkness arrived, Key saw only red erupting in the night sky. Given the scale of the attack, he was certain the British would win. The hours passed slowly, but in the clearing smoke of the dawn's early light on September the 14th, he saw the American flag, not the British Union Jack, flying over the fort, announcing the American victory. Key put his thoughts on paper while still on board the ship, setting his words to the tune of a popular English song. His brother-in-law, commander of a militia at Fort McHenry, read Key's work and had it distributed under the name Defense of Fort McHenry. The Baltimore Patriot newspaper soon printed it, and within weeks, Key's poem, now called The Star-Spangled Banner, appeared in print across the country, immortalizing his words and forever naming the flag it celebrated. It's an interesting story that Key gives as a witness to the events that took place at that, at that battle. He was on a boat sitting in a harbor. He was watching another country attack his own. They were bombarding the fort uh, that was there. And he saw the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air and all of that. And he recorded as an eyewitness, as a firsthand witness, the events that he saw. And those events and those words have become immortalized in the anthem of a nation. He was a witness who gave firsthand testimony of what he had seen. And that has had an immense impact on this country and the history of this country and particularly that flag. Some 200 years later, we're still singing those words commemorating that event that happened to this nation. Some 2,000 years ago, another event occurred that we're still celebrating today and as Christians are to be proclaiming to the world at large out there. There were witnesses who were, who were there the day that Jesus Christ went up a hill carrying a cross up onto Calvary Hill and was there crucified, was buried, and three days later was raised from the dead. And in the end of the Gospel of Luke, the risen Savior appears to his disciples and says that you are witnesses of these things. You have seen what I have done. You have seen and heard what I have said. You have seen my death on that cross, and I now stand before you resurrected. You are my witnesses. And with that, he gives his disciples the commission to go out into the world and to share with everyone that they might meet the truth of what Jesus had done. 
And that's the story that we're going to examine this morning, that we're going to look at together. We're going to see that you and I, as Latter-day disciples, as followers of Christ, have been given the same commission, the same command by Christ to go out into the world and to share the message of what we know, what we have seen, and what we have heard. We go in His name testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin to look at our lesson this morning, I want for us to understand that we too are disciples. This message, while given to 11 men some 2,000 years ago, is just as applicable to us today as it was to them when they heard it all those many years ago. The idea of witnessing is a herald, someone who proclaims something, whether it be news, good news or bad, whatever it be. A witness is someone who offers testimony about what they have seen and heard. And the witnesses, Jesus' disciples, have offered their testimony down through the ages down through the generations to you and I today. We are his latter-day witnesses. We are his latter-day disciples. So as we go through our study this morning, I want everyone to understand with me that this text is directly applicable to us as well. And I want to look at a number of different things, but it's important that we understand that the gospel that we are testifying to is the true gospel. It is not some other gospel. It is not our own gospel. It is not a gospel subject to man's interpretation, but rather it is the gospel that was given by God the Father through the Holy Spirit to men who recorded these words. That is the gospel to which you and I testify today. That is the lesson that we're going to get into today and see what the word has for us. So if you open your Bible and turn to Luke 24, that is our primary passage this morning that we're going to be going through. I've got several other passages that I did not put on your screens for you this morning. I'm going to call those out to you as we go through the, through the study this morning. So be ready. Have your fingers ready. We're going to do a, a little Bible surfing this morning, as it were. So in understanding that we as Latter-day Disciples have a responsibility to share the message that we've been given, we want to look at this fact, testifying to the gospel that is, pro- that is presented in the Word. The gospel that we testify to is the one that is contained in the Word of God. It is not something that we have created on our own. It is not something that we've adapted from another source, from another story, but rather it is the gospel that is presented in the pages of Holy Scripture. Jesus would take his disciples alone after the resurrection, and when he would begin to explain to them that all of the words contained in this holy scripture that were written about him had now been fulfilled in his death and resurrection. And he wanted his disciples to understand this truth for a very important reason, because they would be going out into the world to proclaim his name, his resurrection, and that life was available through him. And these disciples had to be able to demonstrate that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah that was prophesied in the Bible. Particularly if they were going to go to their own brothers, the Jews, first. The Jews believed in the Old Testament of the Bible. That was their standard by which they operated and by which they lived. If they were to be convinced, it was going to have to be done through the the teaching of the Old Testament, but also for people later on as well. We were going to have to be able to demonstrate that the truth of Scripture was fulfilled in Jesus, that what God had promised that what God had promised in response to sin, to the sin of mankind, was to send Jesus to die on a cross. That gospel, that prophecy is contained in the Old Testament of this book. As we're going to see to get today, the disciples didn't understand it. They hadn't yet seen it until Jesus opened their eyes. 
But it is important that we understand that it is there. It is presented in the word. Number one, it's deliberately recorded. Jesus says in verse 44 of Luke chapter 24, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. These words were deliberately recorded about Jesus. The entire Old Testament, from the very beginning to the end, contains prophecies of who the Messiah would be. And Jesus now appears to his disciples and explains to them that these prophecies have now been fulfilled in me. This Old Testament contains all of the information about the Messiah. It began in the very beginning of the book of Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 15. If you turn there, it is a verse that we know as the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first declaration of the gospel. It is not complete. It is not exhaustive, but it gives a hint of what God has in store for his people. Now, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, it records the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And once they had fallen, God appears to them and he calls out to them in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And he calls out and he's looking for them because they've hidden themselves from God because of the shame of their sin. And there's an interchange that goes on between God and Adam regarding what has happened. And and it's divulged, it's explained that Adam has eaten from the tree that he was commanded not to. He has thereby fallen into sin. And God now offers the punishment for that sin. And he pronounces a curse Not only on Adam, but also on the woman and upon the serpent who deceived her. Genesis 3.15 is the pronouncement of that curse upon the serpent. And it is the first declaration of the gospel that would later come through the Messiah. That verse reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, the gospel is beginning to be declared here. That We need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not God's backup plan. It's not a plan B. It was there from the very beginning. When God conceived of the idea inside the Trinitarian God to create mankind, he already knew and had already planned to send his Savior in order to die for the sins of the people that he would yet create. This was something that went all the way back to the foundations of the earth and even prior to that Christ would come and die a substitutionary death for sinners. And it is declared here in Genesis 13 upon this, in this curse upon the serpent. He says that, my, that the offspring of the woman will come and he will crush your head. That the serpent, that Satan will be crushed. And the reference is to Calvary. When Christ goes to the cross, when he achieves that uh, rescue for us, that salvation for us, that crushed the head of the serpent. It destroyed Satan once and for all. But he was bruised in the encounter. The crucifixion was powerful. It was painful. It brought suffering uh, to Jesus. So it is said that it bruised his heel. But these events are deliberately recorded throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis, going through the law of Moses, through the prophets, through the Psalms, and they declare the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in a number of different ways. We also see here that the gospel presented in the word, it is decisively required. The events that are prophesied in the Old Testament concerning who Jesus would be and what he would have to do were required. There was no other way around it. The events were recorded. They had to be seen as the fulfillment of prophecy. 
God had predetermined and had already announced what would occur with regard to the Messiah, the events that would surround his life and what he would do. And in order for Jesus to be that Messiah of the Old Testament, these events had to be fulfilled. Jesus said that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There was no other way. To be the Messiah, Jesus had to fulfill these prophecies. As I said a moment ago, Jesus was born a Jew. He was raised in Jewish culture. He lived under the Jewish law. The, the, the message of life went out first to the Jewish people. And in order for them to be convinced that it was going to have to be demonstrated to them that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that was prophesied in the words of Scripture. These events had to be fulfilled. All of the prophecies concerning the suffering, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah had to be fulfilled. We see in Luke 18, 31, talking about this after the fact, Jesus says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus tells his disciples that these things must occur according to the Scriptures. Why is the question? The disciples have the question, why does this have to happen to fulfill the Scriptures? That's the answer. These things were required. The true gospel required the death of Christ. Thirdly, the gospel that is revealed is divinely revealed. No man comes to the gospel in and of himself. He doesn't come to the gospel independently. It is revealed by God. It is revealed to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, or in this case, through Jesus, but through God. It is divine in its revelation. It's not something that we can come to on our own. Verse 45, Jesus continues. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He's speaking to them about the things that must come to pass, the things that have to occur. And he says, Then their minds were opened to understand the Scriptures. To this point, the disciples hadn't understood all of the things that Jesus had been preaching and teaching them. He had made a number of statements about the things that would occur when he went to Jerusalem, about his suffering, about his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, and so forth and so on. But the disciples hadn't perceived the truth that he was communicating to them. In Luke 18, 34, he says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. All of the things that Jesus talked about that he would have to accomplish, the disciples missed. They didn't understand it. In the same way that they didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies that were made about him, they had been blinded to that truth. But Jesus opened their eyes, opened their minds, opened their hearts to receive that truth. The truth of the gospel is divinely revealed. It's not something that we come to on our own. We cannot come to that truth. There, I'm convinced millions of people walking around today who have an intellectual understanding of what Scripture teaches. They understand the facts, the people, the places, the timeline, and even some of the doctrines that are taught. But they don't have a true understanding of what the gospel is. The true gospel is something that is only revealed by God. In this case, through Jesus. Jesus opened their minds so that they could finally understand what had previously been hidden to them. We, as well, have to be aware of that fact, that you and I will never come to gospel truth on our own unless God does something first to open our mind and open our heart to make it where we can perceive these truths. We will never get there. God has given us his word. It contains his word. But without the guidance of God via the Holy Spirit for us, we'll never get to the truth. 
That's, a, that's an idea or a concept that we know as illumination, a big fancy word, but it just basically means to shine light on. When studying the scriptures, when reading the scriptures, in order for us to perceive the truth that is there, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need for him to shine light on that which is dark. You ever been in a dark room, fumbling around, trying to find something in the dark? You know it's there. You're fumbling around, feeling for it, trying to grab it, bumping into things, knocking your head and your knee, and then finally the light comes on, and there it is, right in front of your face all the time. There it sat, right there. That's kind of what's going on here with this perception of truth in the Scriptures. Okay, the truth was always there. It's contained in the Old Testament of this book. It was always there to be had, but their vision, their sight had been blinded. It had been darkened. They were like those people fumbling around in a dark room looking for that thing that was sitting right in front of them. Until the Spirit of God, Jesus, turned on that light, they weren't able to find it. They weren't able to perceive it. And now that Jesus has opened their minds to that understanding, he begins to go on and to explain to them all of the things that needed to occur and how he has fulfilled each and every one of those things. So we see that testifying to the gospel that is presented in the word, but we also see that we need to testify to the gospel that is proven in his work. Jesus proved every one of these prophecies in his work. In verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We see in the work of Christ, we see in this proclamation of Christ to his disciples that he was going to be a suffering servant. It says there in verse 46 that he was to suffer. He had to suffer. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. It had been prophesied in numerous locations that the Messiah would come and he would be one who was suffered, who was persecuted, who was tortured. Now, the idea of a Messiah for the Jews was not someone who was a suffering servant, but rather someone who was a conquering king. The idea for the Jewish leaders of Messiah was someone who would come in power, who would come in glory, who would crush the enemies that oppressed the nation Israel, that would restore the kingdom to them, that would bring prosperity to them. They saw a conquering king in their Messiah. But Jesus says, no, here in the words of Scripture, what's presented is a suffering servant. And the things that I do and the things that I have now done are a fulfillment of that prophecy, are a fulfillment of those words. I have accomplished all that the scripture has said. If you turn to Isaiah 53, perhaps the most famous passage regarding the prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament, it gives extensive testimony and detail about the suffering that this Messiah would endure. Beginning in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Messiah was to suffer. He was to endure hardships and suffering that no man probably has endured since then. He was literally going to be crushed by the events of Calvary. Now, often I think that we consider only the physical aspect of what happened at the cross. While that was intense, while that was violent, while that was painful and all of those things, I won't go into the details of crucifixion. You've probably heard all of that before. But we need to understand that something else occurred at that cross. It wasn't just the physical pain and agony that Jesus endured on that cross. 
It was the separation and abandonment from his father that he endured. The tri- a member of the triune God laid aside his Godhead, came to earth, took the form of a man, reduced himself to nothing but a slave, went to the cross, and was finally and completely turned away from by his father, whom he had known throughout all eternity. The abandonment of his father was the crushing blow of the cross. The weight of the sin of millions and millions of people that was laid upon him at the cross was the crushing blow dealt at the cross. The physical was bad enough, but it's the spiritual that was the crushing blow that came from his own father. Dealt by God the Father to Jesus the Son to pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. He was a suffering servant, but he became the risen Savior. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Jesus tells his disciples that it was prophesied that I would come and I would suffer. It was prophesied that I would die, but the scripture doesn't end there. It is also prophesied that he would rise from the dead, and that he did. By his very appearance to his disciples, this is a resurrection appearance. Jesus has come to his disciples now after he has been resurrected from the dead, and most likely very shortly before he would ascend into heaven. This was a post-resurrection experience that Christ made to his disciples, and he tells them that today this has been fulfilled. I'm standing here before you. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. This was to occur. This had to occur in order for me to be the Messiah. And today this has happened. Luke 24 verses 1 through 6 records the resurrection for us. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. The disciples went to the tomb expecting to find Jesus there, but he was gone. And two angels appear in his place. and They tell him, What are you doing here? He's already risen. He's gone. Don't, don't hang around here anymore. Don't look for him here. He is gone. The scripture has been fulfilled. In this resurrection, the scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus became the risen Savior to those uh, repentant sinners that he came to die for. The end of verse 47 there. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus was the suffering servant who became the risen Savior to repentant sinners. That's what he came for. That was his mission. That's what the scriptures portray him as. That is what the scriptures prophesy him to be. And that is what he came and what he accomplished to do. He came and he died on a cross for forgiveness of sins to those who had placed their faith and trust in him as Savior. Jesus cannot be Savior to those who do not repent. Jesus cannot be Savior to those who do not place their faith and trust in him as Savior. It is one action, but it has two purposes. When I turn from my sin, when I repent from my sin, I am automatically turning to Jesus because he is the only one who can save me from that sin. He is the only one who can give me the power and the ability to overcome that sin. He is the one who changes my life, who transforms my heart, who makes me into something new again. And that is what Jesus said that he came to do. He said the scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would come and that repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name, no other name, but in his name alone would be proclaimed. Jesus says that has now been fulfilled. Through my death and resurrection, I have fulfilled the scripture. And now repentance and forgiveness and sins of sins in my name is available. So Jesus became the suffering servant who became the risen Savior to repentant sinners. 
You and I must turn from our sin in order to be saved. That is a concept that I think we don't spend enough time talking about today. That Jesus didn't just come to offer forgiveness free of charge to us. Jesus came and offered forgiveness to those who repent, to those who will turn from their sin. And oftentimes today, I believe that we don't spend enough time talking about the need for repentance. We talk about the blessings and the benefits of salvation, and they are immense and they are many, but we don't talk about the necessity of turning from our sin. Jesus said, repentance and forgiveness go together. You cannot have one without the other, right? There's a song that goes back like that. You can't have one without the other. They have to go together, right? Repentance is required in order for forgiveness to be given. So we see that when we testify to the gospel, we testify to the gospel that is presented in the word, what the scripture says. We testify to a gospel that has been proven in the work of Jesus. He accomplished all that was prophesied. But now that that has been accomplished, now that that has been fulfilled, we now have to go and share what has happened. We have to give witness to what has occurred. So we need to see finally that testifying to the gospel is proclaimed in our witness. Our witness. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in this interchange. He calls them witnesses, but we need to understand that that is just as applicable to us today as Latter-day disciples. When one witness goes and tells what he has heard to a new one, that new witness goes and tells what he has heard to a new one, and so forth and so on, down through the time and down through the generations. And we end up here today with us all as witnesses. Jesus says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses. You have seen what has occurred with your own eyes. You have heard my teaching. You have walked with me. You have seen the miracles. You have seen uh, the cross. You have seen the resurrection. I stand before you here now in a glorified body, resurrected from the dead. Jesus says you are witnesses. You are ones who are required and have a responsibility to go and tell what you have seen. This is the great commission to the disciples in the book of Luke. Now, we're most often familiar with the one that comes in Matthew, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples and so forth and so on. This is the parallel passage in Luke. And the Great Commission is given in one sentence. You are witnesses. That idea, that understanding of being witnesses comes with a responsibility. It's not something that we have an option to do or not to do. As a witness, I have a responsibility to tell what I've seen. If I'm a witness to a car crash, I have a responsibility to tell the police what happened. If I'm a witness to a crime, I have a responsibility to tell the world what happened in this crime so that the right people can be punished and so that the right people can receive justice. I have a responsibility as a witness. That is what Jesus is communicating here in this passage. He says, you are witnesses. You are heralds. You are ones who should go out and proclaim all that you have seen and heard. Tell it to everyone that you meet, that it should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, or in other words, to all people. It's not just to be proclaimed to the Jews. It's not just to be proclaimed to men. It's not just to be proclaimed to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, but to all nations, all men, all people everywhere. Go and tell the story. You are witnesses. What are they witnesses of becomes the question. He says, you are witnesses of these things. What are the things that they're witnesses of? It's what we just talked about. It's the word, the work, and the will of Christ. They walked with him for three years. They saw the things that he did. They saw the healings that he did. They saw him being arrested. They saw him carrying a cross up a hill. They saw him crucified. They saw him buried in a tomb. They saw him resurrected from the dead. All of the things that they have seen, they now have a responsibility to share with the world out there. 
They can't just keep it to themselves. It's not for their own personal glorification. It's not for their own personal edification. They have a responsibility to go out into the world and to share it. That becomes the question for us. If we are Latter-day disciples, if we are privy to this information, if we are witnesses to what Jesus has done and can do, don't we also have a responsibility to go out into that world and to share it with all the people that we meet? I would argue yes. It's not just for a few. It's not just for a select group. It's for all of us. Jesus told all of his disciples that you all are witnesses. Every one of you go out and share what you have seen and heard. We all are witnesses. So the question becomes, what are we witnesses to and what is it that we need to share? First, we need to share the work of Christ. Okay, The work of Christ, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. His suffering, his death, and his resurrection. These are the things that the disciples had seen. They had seen the agony. They'd seen the pain. They had seen the death. They had seen the resurrection. All of these things they had information about. These are the things that they are supposed to testify. You cannot testify to the gospel without sharing the work of Christ. Without telling people that Jesus came to die on a cross for your sins. If you can't tell people that or if you don't tell people that, you have not shared the gospel with them. The gospel is not just about trying to be good or have your good outweigh your bad. The gospel includes the work of Christ. It's understanding that he came for a purpose, and that purpose was to die for your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, talking about this very idea of witnessing. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that this was of first importance. What does that mean? That means the first thing he did when he got to town was he shared the truth of what he had seen, what he knew to be true. This was a matter of first importance. Every time Paul went on a missionary journey, you notice he comes to a new city. And what does it say that he did? It says that he goes to the synagogues and he begins to reason with the Jews there, right? The first matter of first importance for Paul was always to share the truth of the work of Christ, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Everywhere he went, he shared that truth. You and I are no different. Everywhere we go, we should be sharing that truth of Christ's suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Without that, without that truth, we have not shared the gospel with people. The gospel is not simply turning away from sin and trying to be a good person. The gospel is understanding that sin can't be dealt with on our own, that there's only one person who can deal with our sin, that that person is Christ, that that sin carries a penalty, which is death, and that penalty had to be paid for by someone, and that was Jesus. We have to share that truth with people because many of us today, I'm convinced, believe that I can deal with my sin on my own. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'll take care of it, right? That's our attitude Particularly as Americans here in the West, we have a get-or-done attitude, right? I can do it myself. My daughter says that a lot when I try and help her with things. I can do it myself, Daddy. They, they don't want to be helped. They want to do it on their own. Well, you and I are overgrown children, unfortunately, most of the time. We want to do it on our own. The problem is, is our sin is not something that can be dealt with on our own. We can't do it. God had to do it. And God did it through Jesus Christ on a cross. That is the truth we have to share with all those that we meet. Not only do we want to share the work of Christ, but we need to share the word of Christ. 
We can't just tell people, well, yeah, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross. That paid the penalty for sin, and we're good. That's not the gospel. We also have to share his words. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Those are the two things that we have to share to people anytime we're testifying to the gospel. You must repent of your sin. You must believe in Jesus. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. You cannot stay in your pit of sin and expect to be saved and brought into the family of God. God is a holy God and God is a just God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He will not tolerate sin and he must punish sin. That is his character. That is who he is. Sin has to be dealt with. And the only way for that sin to be dealt with is by repenting of it. Now, repenting is not a temporary turning. It's not a temporary repentance. Repentance in the biblical context is a permanent turning. It is identifying that my lifestyle prior to my knowledge of Christ is sinful, that it is wrong, and it is a permanent turning away from it. It's a 180 degree turn and go the other way. That's what repentance means. Repentance is not something that's preached very often today. Most churches you walk into, you won't hear repentance preached. They don't want to deal with the sin issue at all. They want to deal with the faith issue. Come and believe. Come join our membership. Come do this. But they don't deal with that sin issue. They don't want to confront sin. Sin has to be confronted. It has to be dealt with. One cannot become saved if the sin issue is not dealt with. Repentance from sin is required, but faith in Jesus is also required. Okay, Acts 2.38, Peter preaching at Pentecost, he said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What did he say? Repent and forgiveness will come. Right? He didn't say anything about believing there in that passage. I didn't see that anywhere. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Because the turning from sin is the beginning of faith, is it not? The two come so close together that I think we often can't discern the difference of which comes first and which comes second. But a turning of sin is automatically a turning to faith. They're one and the same. As I begin to turn from my sin, I'm turning toward something else. I'm turning toward faith. That's what has to be accomplished in the gospel. Peter said that you need to repent in order to receive forgiveness. Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in my turning from sin, I have to call upon the Lord because he's the only one who has the power to help me be forgiven of my sin, to help me turn from my sin. Amen? I can't do it on my own. Trust me, I've tried. It doesn't work very well. Jesus is the only one who can help us turn from our sin and who can accomplish that permanently. Doesn't mean we become sin-free. Doesn't mean we become perfect. But it's a permanent turning away from a sinful lifestyle from the manner of sin in our life. It doesn't mean we become perfect. Don't ever think that, but it means that we turn away from that being the normal pattern of life. The Bible describes you and I as in bondage to sin prior to our salvation experience, that we are wholly and completely in bondage to sin. We can't not not sin. That's who we are. That's what our nature is. We're completely in bondage to it. But when we come to faith in Christ and we repent from that sin, we're set free from that bondage. We are set free in Christ. You ever hear the term freedom in Christ all through the epistles? That's what he's talking about. It's that freedom from that sin nature. I can now do something besides sin. Jesus has now given me the ability to be something else rather than just a sinner. 
Those are the words that we have to preach to people that we encounter, that we have to proclaim. We are witnesses. We proclaim the work of Christ, but we also proclaim His Word. And His Word is is that He came for repentance and forgiveness of sins in His name. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is what He has proclaimed. But we also proclaim one more thing, our third thing, the will of Christ. What is the will of Christ? Well, He tells us there in verse 47. His will is that we proclaim the gospel to all nations. We don't just tell some people, we don't just tell our closest friends, we don't just tell our our family, but we proclaim it to all the nations. Verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The word has to go out to everyone. Each and every one of us has a responsibility to share it. The, The gospel can't go to the entire world if just a few of us are sharing it. God, through Christ, has called us all to share the gospel to everyone that we meet in every circumstance and in every occasion. We are to be witnesses who are on mission to share the gospel with all the people that we encounter and that we meet, wherever that may be. That may be in our homes. That may be at family gatherings. That may be in our workplace. It may be in our recreation place. It may even be in our church. Trust me, there are lost people here this morning. Maybe I need to proclaim it to them. But wherever I go, whatever I do, I need to be sharing the truth of the gospel with all that I meet. That is the will of Christ. That is why he said that he came. He came to bring forgiveness of sins and that that should be proclaimed to all the nations. He gave them the commission. He said, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses of these things. Go and tell these things. Go and share these things. This is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the one we're probably more familiar with. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because of what I've done, because of the penalty that I paid for you, because of what was done at Calvary, all authority has now been granted to me. And because I have all authority, now I commission you, now I send you. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the commission that he gave. That's the commission that we're supposed to share. If we too are witnesses to what Christ can and has done, we have a responsibility to go and share that truth. We can't keep it under our hat. We can't hide it in our closet. It has to come out. We have a responsibility and a duty to share that truth. Jesus has commanded it of us, so we should do it for that account. But we should also do it for the account out of love for him, what he has accomplished for us. He came to die on a cross for you and me. It was his love that caused God to send Christ into the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the love of God that caused him to send Jesus into the world. And Jesus came and he died that substitutionary death for all who would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith, and he would grant them everlasting life. That is the word that we have to share because that is the word that people need to hear. There are people out there by the millions that need to hear those words. I can't share it with all of them. Your pastors can't share it with all of them. Your life group leaders can't share it with all of them. Jesus called on every single one of us to go out into that world and to share that truth. So that brings me to my question this morning for us. Am I his witness? Am I? Am I witnessing for him? 
Am I testifying to his gospel? What does my life show? If I asked your friends and your family and your co-workers who you were, what your life was it about, what would they tell me? I don't think I haven't asked that question to myself a number of different times. What would people say about me? Our life is to be a testimony to Christ. We're supposed to be his witness. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. You have a responsibility to tell people. Are you doing that? Are we doing that? The responsibility doesn't go away. You don't get to do it one time and lead somebody to faith and then check the box and move on. Jesus is talking about a lifestyle here. You are witnesses of these things. You have seen what I have done. Your responsibility is to go and to tell all that you need over and over and as many times as it might take. We have to be his witnesses. That's what we've been called to be. Let's pray. Yeah.